I'll do a little guessing game this morning. <clears throat> There's a survey that I saw some results from that gave the percentage of people who are married who list who listed their marriage, they would describe it as very happy. Percentage of people who are married who said their marriage would be described as very happy. Now, I'm going to let you guess on what the percentage is you think of people who were surveyed who indicated they are married and very happy. What do you think? Who's, who's got? Drew says zero. Drew, you're in trouble at home. 5% over here. What do you think? 20. Anybody else? Anybody? No more guesses? Nobody wants to get in trouble? She scooted over, by the way. I saw it. 1%. You can move back now. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? We got 5%, 1, maybe a half percent, 20%. Anybody else? What do you think? Did you realize that the survey indicated that although most people would guess that there aren't a lot of marriages that would be very happy, there was somewhere between 61 and 62% of people who were married who said they were very happy. Now, isn't that interesting? Because if I were to start this sermon by doing word association with the word marriage, you'd really get yourself in trouble if you are married. Ball and chain. Well, maybe my better half. I'm not sure. Or maybe the word never. (laughs) I'm not doing it. We've got some folks here today who are married. We have folks here who are unmarried. This sermon, just so you know, is definitely about marriage, as you can tell from the bulletin outline there. But it is not just for married people. Because this is a sermon that I hope that whether you are married or not, Whether you say, well, I'm unmarried and I don't want to be married, or I'm unmarried, maybe I'd like to be married one day. Maybe you've been married for a long time, a short time, maybe you've been divorced. I don't know. But this is a sermon for everybody. Not because I wrote it, but because the way that God handles marriage throughout the Scripture, it affects everyone. The series that we're in is called Home, and we'll finish in a couple of weeks, a few weeks on Father's Day. We started on Mother's Day, and we'll finish on Father's Day just talking about some of the issues that people deal with at home. And the idea is that your home has shaped you. It has marked you in so many ways. And if I were to ask you for your story of what it was like growing up in your home, I guarantee you, you'd say, in conclusion, you know, a lot of the reason I am the way I am is because of the home that I was raised in. And some, that would be great. For others, you'd say, you know what, it wasn't so great. And maybe there's some in between. And I guarantee you this, there is nothing, there is nothing that shaped you more and has affected you more and and determines more about what you think about the topic of marriage than the marriage that you saw growing up. Or maybe you didn't see a marriage growing up. Maybe you saw a good one, maybe you saw a bad one, maybe you saw a broken one. I don't know. But I guarantee you this, the, the way that you have learned to approach marriage at least by default and sort of instinctively, has a lot to do with the marriage that you saw in your home. And the way that your children, if you have them, will view marriage. They will grow up and they will have some view of marriage will be shaped to a large degree. Not completely and not in every case, but to a large degree. They will have a view of marriage based upon the the marriage they saw in the home. Now, of course, as we know, children make their own choices. And so this isn't pressure today. 
But at the same time, it is an honest reflection. So I hope this morning to be able to give you, here's what God thinks about it. Challenge you with a question at the end, and then we'll close. All right? So that's, that's where we're going. Marriage, as you see in the title of the sermon, marriage matters. Now, whether we want it to or not, it certainly does. Marriage matters not only to us because we know how much it shapes us, but it certainly matters to God. The issues that you have in your home today come down in a large degree to the kind of marriage that may be represented. And I'll say this to the unmarried people. Marriage matters even to unmarried people because it matters to God. And I hope it matters to you in the same way that it matters to God. Because if it doesn't, your marriage will be set up by your view of it now. And if it doesn't matter that much to you now as an unmarried person, and I can almost guarantee you it won't matter as much to you when you are married. So, here's why it matters. Three reasons this morning why marriage matters. First of all, it matters because God created it. And that, honestly, I could close with that, and that would be enough. God created it. We didn't invent it. Society, government did not invent it. It is not something that we came up with. And if you were honest, you would say, I'm not sure that if I were trying to help people just get along in life, I'd create marriage. Because sometimes it doesn't happen that way, right? Marriage exposes everything about who you are, doesn't it? I mean, it lays you wide open. Somebody gets to see you for who you really are, good, bad, or otherwise. God invented marriage. It matters because it was part of the created order. Check it out in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture this morning, but there's one consistent theme in all of them. We get in Genesis chapter 2 the original quotation. We get in Matthew 19... Jesus referring to this scripture, and then in Ephesians 5, Paul referring to it. So one verse that is quoted three different times in scripture, which ties the entire thing together. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is like him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground each wild animal and each bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal, but for the man no helper was found who was like him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Verse 24 is the familiar verse that carries the theme into Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they will become one flesh. From the very beginning, this is part of the creation story, God created marriage. He put a man and a woman together for a specific purpose and several purposes, and He created marriage. Marriage matters to God because He created it. And let me just say this as a side note. Because He created it, guess who gets to define it? He does. And He alone. Now in our society today, of course, this is not popular. And I'm not going to rail on it. I don't have an axe to grind this morning. I'm just going to simply tell you what the Scripture says. Because God created marriage, He is the one who gets to define it. The reason marriage is restricted to one man and one woman is not because it's popular, but because God said that's the way it is from creation. Not just in the New Testament, not just later on, but from creation. 
And so again, if we have a problem with the way that God has created things, we need to take it up with Him. And as I said in the prayer, we need to be willing to adjust to what God says and who He is, rather than asking God to adjust to us or be dismissed. Marriage was created from the very beginning by God for one man, one woman, to be a primary relationship. Understand this, marriage came before government, it came before the church, it came even before kids. Marriage was the primary and first relationship. It came before everything else. So it's a big deal devised by God, not by humans, and it's God's plan for building society, and it's part of His plan for helping to transform individuals to become who He wants them to be. It follows perfect creation. This was before sin. Sin had not messed it up. God didn't see sin in the world, so then He created marriage to try to fix it. He created marriage before there was sin in the world. We're the ones who've messed it up. God created it to be primary and also to be beneficial, which is what I love. Now, you can hear a lot of sermons on marriage. And you can walk away feeling, well, I just got to suck it up, do a little better. Really just stay in there no matter what. And certainly I hope you receive that. I hope you receive the challenge from the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, I'm going to make this work. But you realize God created marriage not to be something that was a ball and chain. (laughs) Not to be something that weighs you down. I try to tell young people this when I'm doing any kind of premarital counseling or any kind of wedding ceremony. I always mention this. God created marriage to be something good for your benefit. And, and, and it's sad because we, we say from the very beginning, which is typical and exactly what I expected, we expect that very few people will say that marriage is something that is very happy. We're cynical about it. But if you look in Genesis 1 and 2, and I'll just reference the verses here, God created marriage to be something that was very beneficial for the man and the woman together. He wanted them to have great meaning in their lives, to fill the earth, he says. I mean, what, what great meaning they had from the very beginning. You're here to fill and populate this earth. They were to have some great adventures together. God said, go, go fill the earth and subdue it. Tame it. Bring it into order. All of the things. Go out and have some adventures together. They were to have great pleasure. God said, here's all this stuff you can eat. And he said, every bit of it is very good. He put them together. They felt no shame together. They were to have pleasure in every aspect of life. And it was to be perfect. Marriage was also to bring them companionship. What did he say in verse 18 there? It's not good for the man to what? To be alone. I'm going to give him somebody he can be with who's, who's like him. Not an animal he can't talk to. Not somebody who doesn't understand him, who can't relate. I'm going to give him a woman. I'm going to make sure that they are together for companionship. Verses 24 and 25 hint toward the idea of intimacy. Both with each other, physically and emotionally and so on. And then later we see with God, after Adam and Eve had sinned, you know what God comes and and does? He comes and walks in the garden. Intimacy with God. That's what his pattern was. They were also to have their needs met. I love this part about Adam. Now, fellas, just so you know, if you're married... The the stakes are raised in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, because Adam sees his wife and he utters poetry. I mean, he just breaks out almost into song. He breaks out into poetry. The first words of poetry in Scripture, Genesis 2, 23, this one at last. I mean, you can almost hear Etta James in the background, at last. She busts it out. He says in poetry, poetic form, this one at last. Finally, we've found the one. God has made the one whose bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's perfect for me. Fellas, poetry. 
Maybe that's the key to your woman's heart. I don't know. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. They were to be together to meet one another's needs, to be what God wanted them to be, perfect for one another in the sense that they were different and yet coming together to make one another better. There was to be growth. A man will leave his father and mother, leave the home that he was raised in, and go begin a life with his wife. In Ephesians chapter 5, as we'll get to in a little bit, we get the idea that marriage was also to have an evangelistic purpose, to point toward the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And so the relationship of marriage in the Bible, described by God, was one of closeness, one of enjoyment, of being together, one of being united in their thoughts and their goals and their plans and their efforts, to be united in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Marriage was intended to be good. And let me just say this. If right now, if you would look at marriage and say, I don't think it's very good, let me encourage you. Go back to the way that God designed it. Figure out what has gone wrong in your thinking, in your marriage, whatever. And get on your knees before God and humble yourself and say, God, lead me back to the design that you have for marriage that is good. There is hope. There is a chance. You say, no, 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 it's irreconcilable. I'll tell you this, and I'll say it again here in a minute. Every relationship is irreconcilable. You put two people together, they ain't going to get along. Put two two two-year-olds in a room, guess what's going to happen? Somebody's going to bite. Somebody's going to hit. Somebody's going to steal something. And then they're both going to cry. That's just the way that it goes. There are two people that are compatible. But I tell you this, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, there is the absolute possibility that your marriage, whether you have one now or you hope to have one in the future, your marriage can be a blessing and something good. There is hope. God created it so it matters. And only when we submit to Him, when we bend our beliefs to what He says about marriage, can we experience the blessings. So God created it, that's why it matters. Secondly, marriage matters because Jesus confirmed it. Jesus is going to quote Genesis 2.24 here in just a second. If you've got your Bible handy or can get there, turn to Matthew chapter 19. First book in the New Testament, 19th chapter. God created it. Jesus confirmed it. Look with me beginning in verse 3 of Matthew 19. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read? Now, let me just tell you this. The Pharisees come to test him. And they've got a, a kind of some trickeration going on here. The little question we got for you, Jesus. We know you're really smart and you're a great teacher. So can, uh, can a man just say, for any reason, divorce his wife? Jesus, in response, we don't get the tone in the Scripture, but when he says, haven't you read? Do you realize these guys memorized the Old Testament? Memorized it. They knew it all. And he looks at them and says, you guys uh, apparently haven't read this, right? Jesus, I believe, in a very holy and godly way, was great at sarcasm. Great at sarcasm. I mean, he, he's, he's laying it to them just a little bit. You guys, apparently, you haven't read this part. Is that what you're saying to me? Okay, anyway, side note. <clears throat> I like Jesus. Um, he's sarcastic. I like it. <clears throat> holy, perfect, 
and gets them all at once. All right. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? Further confirmation of God's original design, one man, one woman. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Don't you know this? I mean, he's taking them back to the created order. Don't you know that from the very beginning, God said, here's a man, here's a woman, I'm going to put them together, they will become one. So they are no longer two, he says in verse 6, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And I believe the King James says, let let man not tear asunder. Whatever that means. They must not separate. You've heard it said at weddings. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they ask him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from when? The beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. They weren't expecting this answer from Jesus. And I'll be honest, it's a tough answer. Jesus was asked about divorce, and he responded very clearly. He tells them, first of all, that wasn't God's plan. You understand that God designed marriage to be one man, one woman with no options. You're in it together, stuck for life, if you will. Jesus said it's designed to be that way, and marriage as we just looked at in Genesis chapter 2, was designed to be a wonderful experience, something that fulfilled and brought happiness to each person and accomplished God's purposes of companionship and sanctification and to multiply and fill the earth. And Jesus says His standard has not changed. It has not changed. What was in the beginning, He says, is still the case. And it is to be one man, one woman, no options. He says that's it. And he says the two are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And what God has joined together, he says, don't, don't separate. And then he goes on, they ask him, now why then did, did Moses say that you could do this? They've, they revered Moses, of course. He was the greatest leader that Israel had ever known. They said, why then was the case? Jesus says, well, he, he allowed you, he permitted you to give divorce papers to your wife because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus says, divorce is not God's plan, and it always begins with sin. Now hear me right. In just a minute, Jesus is going to tell us that not all divorce is sin, but you know as well as I do that every divorce that's ever happened began somewhere with sin. Somewhere along the line. Either somebody cheated, somebody got selfish, somebody got hard-hearted, And it began with sin. All divorce begins somewhere with sin. You know that. Not rocket science. You understand that. Jesus says it always begins with the hardness of heart. Somewhere along the way, somebody decided, I'm not going to be the husband, the wife that I need to be. It always begins with sin. And unfortunately, of course, in some cases, you just get caught up in it. I mean, that's simply the way it is. You may not be this morning. You may be the person who was sinned against. And that's awful. And it's tragic. But you know, divorce at some point always begins with some kind of sin. And sin, as we well know, as you see in the tragedy of divorce, always destroys you. But Jesus goes on. He says, you know, it's not God's plan. It always begins with sin. But in some cases, it's permitted. Verse 9, he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Paul went on to, to add more to this. 
the question then becomes, okay, now when, when is divorce permitted? I preached on this several years ago, and so I pulled my notes again. I'm just going to lay out for you what I laid out then. As best as I can tell, this is, this is where divorce is permitted. And in those, case, those cases, then remarriage would be permitted. Jesus here highlights that in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, divorce is certainly permitted. And then as a result, remarriage would be permitted. So if one partner cheats, divorce is certainly permitted. Uh, we learn in, uh, in 1 Corinthians... Uh, and, and also in 2 Corinthians, uh, some other things about divorce. If one spouse um, dies, or let's say there was a, a break in the marriage and that spouse then remarries, at that point, from what I can tell in Scripture, and some may agree, some may disagree, but I believe that that bond is broken. And so the person who remains is free to remarry because you don't want to break another bond in order to create a different one. If there's been no sexual unfaithfulness, but only irreconcilable differences... As I just mentioned earlier, there's always irreconcilable differences. You know what the Bible says? Divorce isn't permitted. Now that's tough. And in that case, then remarriage would not be permissible. Hear it from God. I don't mean that as a heavy, it's just the way it is. What if you're married to somebody who doesn't believe what you believe? Well, Paul covered that in 1 Corinthians. And he said, if you're married to somebody who is an unbeliever. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. Stay with them, he says. If they leave because of your faith in Christ, let them go, he says. And you're free then to remarry. Now, there are some unique scenarios. I believe when you're in a situation where you've got any kind of abuse, any kind of thing going on, get out of there right now. Draw some lines and say, you know what? Until this is fixed, no, 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 this isn't happening anymore. Would never, 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 under any circumstances, expect someone to stay and take it. Never. Figure it out, get some help, and draw some lines. person needs some help. They need to get They need to repent. They need to give their lives to the Lord, or else that ain't going to work. So hear what Jesus is saying. Hear what the Scripture says. There are some cases where divorce is permitted, and in those cases, remarriage will be permitted. That's sort of the Cliff Notes version of that. If you'd like to talk some more about it after the service, I would be happy to discuss all of that. Let's look at the Scripture together and we'll help figure that out. I, I think in the case where we look in Scripture and we say, well, the Bible talks about forgiveness and so on, understand that divorce certainly in certain cases is permitted, but let me say this as well, it's never required. It's never required. You say, you know what, people are going to look at me like I'm crazy if I try to reconcile with this person. And you know what? If you believe that that's the best course for you to take, I think it's always God's best for reconciliation. Sometimes it's not possible. But if you decide, you know what? I'm going to give every effort to reconcile, then praise God and may His Holy Spirit go with you and give you strength. And I mean that sincerely. We certainly know that divorce has lasting implications. So many here, as I look around, I know your life has been touched by divorce in some way. It's so tragic. And it affects you even today. And I want you to know God loves you. And He's compassionate towards you. I love you as well, and I don't mean in any way to condemn you. I hope that you hear what I'm saying this morning. There is life beyond that. But Jesus says, there is no easy way out of this. And so if you're an unmarried person, let me say this to you. The fact that Jesus confirms marriage is something that matters and that He offers no easy way out of it, that really ought to drastically affect how you search for a spouse. Let me encourage you, if you're an unmarried person, stop looking for a soulmate. Stop. 
Well, I want to find somebody who, who just, boy, they're so perfect and we're so compatible and they meet every need, don't require me to change in any way, and good luck. That person has not been created. They are not real. They do not exist. They have never lived, nor will they ever live. Your soulmate ain't out there. If that's what you think of as a soulmate. Get off of Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff that tells you you ought to find this perfect person. They ain't no perfect person. Look around. They ain't perfect. I see marriages here today, though, that are strong and loving between two imperfect people who sometimes don't get along. Isn't that right? I'm just going to look around real quick. <laughs> sometimes you don't get along. Listen, sometimes you don't feel like you got a soulmate. Because they don't see the world the way you do, and sometimes they expect that you're going to change a few things here and there. But the truth is, if you stop looking for a soulmate and look for somebody with whom you can build a biblical marriage... Let me tell you what you'll find. You'll find somebody that eventually just might turn into that person as you change as well. The person that you've been looking for all along. And when you stop looking for a soulmate, somebody who's perfect, who doesn't want to change you, and is always compatible, maybe, just maybe, you'll find who you've been looking for. Biblical marriages are not built on somebody giving you all you need and never requiring you to change. They're not even built on compatibility. They're built first on a commitment to Jesus and then on a radically and completely unusual commitment to another person. Jesus confirmed it. Thirdly, the gospel clarifies it. Ephesians chapter 5. You hear this at weddings a lot, these verses. I just want to focus on one particular verse. Paul lays out the way that the marriage relationship is to work. and He says, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, live in mutual submission, sacrifice, love one another, give of yourselves, and so on. And he says in verse 32, after quoting this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will be one flesh. He says in verse 32, this mystery, this sort of thing that, that was kind of unknown before, This mystery is profound. This is a big deal. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he's saying here is that the marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church and vice versa. How so, you say? Well, in Jesus and the church, you have two complete opposites coming together. And I believe this is further confirmation when you look at the opposites coming together, further confirmation of God's original design for marriage. You have the church and Jesus, two opposites joined together. You have also in these verses mutual love, submission, mutual sacrifice. You have a covenant relationship. He says, this is what a marriage is to be. Just like Jesus loves the church, and just like the church responds to Jesus, that's the way that a marriage should work. So marriage isn't about seeking personal fulfillment. It's about seeking mutual benefit and mutual fulfillment. If you got into marriage thinking it's going to fulfill you personally, the honeymoon doesn't last that long. You're going to come crashing down, aren't you? Some of you, okay, I know about that. Been there and done that. Well, we came back home and then we've realized we're together. (laughs) (laughs) Drew, I'm telling you, she's scooting over even further. Now she's 
she, she told me to say all this stuff. But you know, isn't that true though? I mean, you get into something looking for a person. This is going to be so much of what I need. Oh, it's going to be great. And God says, you know what? Marriage can be a great benefit, but only as you seek the benefit of the other. Marriage isn't about expecting the other person to meet all your needs. It's about helping each other become the people God wants you to be. In those verses earlier before verse 32 there in Ephesians 5, it talks about that Jesus seeks the holiness of the church. And I wonder in marriage, are we seeking each other's holiness? Are we helping each other become the person that Jesus wants you to be? Marriage is about the gospel. Do you realize the gospel message is that you are more and I am more sinful and flawed than I ever imagined that I am? I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever imagined, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever realized. It's the message of the gospel. You realize that, it, that marriage about, is about the gospel in the sense that on the cross, Jesus saw us for who we really are. Those who would abandon and betray Him and turn our backs on Him and not believe in Him and commit sin after sin after sin. And guess what He did? He stayed there. He stayed there on the cross. What if you approach marriage like that? That's the power of the gospel working in your marriage. When you see the other person for who they really are and all their flaws and all their sins and you say, you know what? Just like Jesus, I'm staying there. Until the bitter end. Marriage is about the gospel. Our relationship with Jesus transforms us, and that relationship can then in turn transform your marriage. It's about the gospel. Our hearts, having been transformed by the love of God, then pouring out that love unconditionally to another person, even to a spouse who sometimes lets us down. Even for that person, we can love unconditionally and completely because we have so been loved. Marriage matters to God. And the gospel clarifies it. It's an exclusive and permanent relationship. I would encourage you to start doing for your spouse what Jesus did for you on the cross. Start doing for your spouse what Jesus did for you on the cross. I want to close this morning with a question and a challenge. So you can fill in the blanks on the question, then listen to the challenge. The question, very simply, at the end of all this, is does marriage matter to me as much as it does to God? Does marriage matter to me like it does to God? For some you'll say, well, absolutely. For some you say, well, I'm not sure. The question to answer every day this week is, does marriage matter to me like it does to God? And my challenge to you is, if so, then prove it. Prove it. Don't ask God to adjust to what you want marriage to be. Say, God, adjust me to what your definition and your purposes are. God created it. Go back to that. Jesus confirmed it. Instead of looking for an easy way out, I tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to follow God's plan for marriage, and I'm going to love like Jesus loves me. Prove it this week. I'll tell you this. If you find yourself married or unmarried, if you find yourself in a tough marriage... If you find yourself wanting to have a great marriage, every bit of it we see throughout Scripture, every bit of it goes back, as Paul said, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless your life is grounded in Him, you won't care what God has said about marriage. You won't care that Jesus confirmed it. You won't care that the gospel clarifies it. Let me encourage you this morning. 
Don't start by working on your marriage. Don't start by trying to do better. Start by, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, with the fear of Christ. With love for Jesus. Start there by humbling yourself. And you say, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to be the quick fix I'm looking for. I, I doubt that it will. But there's no other place you can start. Because on your own, it won't be fixed. But through the power of Jesus living inside of you and resonating in your marriage, the one you have or the one that you want, that's where the power is. And that's the promise of God. Start today with humbling yourself before the Lord. And then maybe this morning you'd grab your spouse and say, let's go and pray. You know what? There's some things I need to repent of. And we're going to do our best to let God build in us a biblical marriage. We're going to let Him define it. We're going to listen to what Jesus says. And we're going to have a marriage in which we do for one another what Jesus has done for us. If you're married, if you're unmarried, I'd encourage you this morning, spend time with the Lord. Let Him be the one that defines it, confirms it, and clarifies it for you. Does marriage matter to you as much as it does to God? And if, if so, improve it by submitting to what God wants for you in marriage. Let's pray together. If you need prayer this morning or would like to pray together maybe with your spouse, a future spouse, or even by yourself, and you say, you know what, I, I'm just going to humble myself this morning. I'm going to give myself to the Lord and ask Him to build a biblical marriage in and through me. I'll be here and be happy to pray for you, but you're not obligated to that. You can pray there at your pew. You can come down front and kneel together if you'd like to. really would encourage you to do that. Marriage matters. It's shaped you and it will continue to. So look to God, His created order. Look to Jesus for what He said about it. Look to the gospel and let that be your guide. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, I pray that you take the words that have been said and crystallize them in our hearts. May there be no confusion. May we hear clearly from you, not from me. May we not get the opinions of a man, but the Word of God. So in these next few moments, Holy Spirit, we pray that Your Word will not be stolen, not be hijacked and changed and twisted, but it would be absolutely clear to us what You've said this morning. Help us sort through all the fog of our society and see You clearly. Lord, I pray for those marriages that are struggling. I pray for folks who have been through divorce those who have been so tragically affected by terrible circumstances, I pray you'd heal them. Lord, whether they're in a marriage right now or not, I pray that you'd give them wholeness and restoration and that in the marriage they're in or the one that you have for them, Lord, I pray that you would fulfill your purposes. Help them to glorify you. I pray you'd bless them. Lord, for those this morning who may be young and unmarried and not sure if that's the path they want to go down. Lord, I pray that they would see marriage for the way you created it. Something good, something beneficial, something that glorifies Jesus. Help us, Lord, this morning to see and hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.